very cool. Hey, guys, good morning. Yeah, all right, welcome. Glad you guys are here. I know that, um, well, first of all, it's great to be together, and I, uh, I think about all the folks that come visit on Easter, and I, I just think there's probably a lot of you who are visiting church for the first time or our church for the first time, and I, I'm sure that some of you were tricked or conned or whatever might, you know, whatever, that maybe your grandma was like, I'll give you $20 to put on the pastel sweater and come to church with me and sit next to me and fake a smile for a little bit. So if that's you, I'm really glad that you're here. I know there's lots of places you could be. Some of you are already thinking about brunch or eating ham because we eat ham at Easter. Everybody eats ham. No other time of the year, basically, except maybe Christmas. I mean, it's like that's our, that's our, our meat of the holiday or whatever. So you're thinking about that. You're already kind of down that road. Whether or not this is your home church, I'm really glad you're here. If you have, uh, this is your home church, but you haven't been here in a while, maybe you've kind of, you know, wandered down a path you didn't want to, you're like, you got busy, distracted, whatever, you moved. Whatever brought you back here, welcome home. I'm really, really glad that you're back home. I know that there's, um, you know, there's lots of stories that go along with that. And we don't want to be a church that says, well, where have you been? We just want to say welcome home. We're really, really glad that you're back. And um, if this is your home church, so glad that you're with us again at Easter. This is kind of the, you know, as I, I think about it, this is kind of the, Easter's like the Super Bowl for the church. <laughs> it's like this is our Super Bowl Sunday. I mean, other, other you know, the, the world kind of has tried to co-opt Christmas, but they're not really touching Easter. I mean, they're like, ah, no, I'm not sure. Like, we let the church still have that one. So we still got it. It's ours. We own it. We still own Easter. And so um, it's our Super Bowl. It's a very big day. I'm glad you're here. You're a great looking crowd. Very excited. A lot of pastel colors. Good. All right. Now, whatever brought you here, whatever reason you're here, like I said, whether you were tricked, conned, whether it's your home church or you haven't been here in a while, whatever it is, welcome. Welcome. I'm so glad you're here. I think God's up to some great stuff. Hopefully you get to discover some new things or maybe see some old things in a fresh way today. And so before we start today, why don't we just uh, only pray and we'll get into the Easter message. Let's pray. Father, every person in here is longing for a, a new life, for new hope. Father, at Easter we celebrate that new life is possible. We get to, um, we get to see firsthand, we get to see the, the power of the resurrection. We get to consider what that might mean for us. And Jesus says all of us are looking for new life and for new hope. There is also within us. For a lot of us, our search for new life and new hope comes out of deep sorrow. We know there's been great pain, perhaps, in this past season. Jesus, we know that you are in the midst of it, but we don't feel it, and we're longing to see an end to it. Some of us, Father, are in a season where there's been some really great stuff. And yet all of us, Jesus, want to be remade into something new. We believe that there's still something that can be done in us. There's a kind of oldness to our life that needs to be freshened up. But Father, we acknowledge that we cannot do it on our own power. And so, Jesus, for just a moment, as we travel, as we get in the car and drive, and we do all these things, and we see all these friends and people we haven't seen in a long time, family and stuff, Father, we ask that you would reveal yourself to us in a real powerful, meaningful way, and that we would just for a moment have a moment to pause, to consider you and to hear from you. And so, Jesus, we give you just, just a moment to let you speak to us in stillness. there's something inexplicable about Easter. There's a lot that we look at when we talk about Easter that is completely bizarre, that is out there, that is so strange. There is mystery and there is hope in that mystery. Father, might you reveal yourself in a new way, in a fresh way to us today, that we might know what it means to walk more closely and intimately with the God of the universe who loves us so deeply, Jesus. And it's in your name, Father, that we pray. Amen. Amen. 
Well, if you came in, you probably got a bulletin with you or a bulletin on your way in. And there's an outline. If you want to follow along, there's an outline. You can pull that out. If you want to follow along as well in your Bible, we'll be mostly in Acts chapter 5. Uh, if you want to follow along, maybe in a digital, whatever it is, just go ahead and follow. Or you just want to look at the screen, great. Everything you need will be on the screen as well. But however you want to follow along, great. Make sure you get a chance to do that. Um, while we're doing that, though, I want to ask you a question. This is not a rhetorical question, so I want you to feel free to speak back to me as I ask it, which is this, this, is, this is a question. What is an expression, what is a word or a phrase that your mother always used to you, used at you, toward you, for you, whatever, when you were growing up? So I'm speaking mostly to the grown-ups here, the adults. What's an expression that your mother used all the time for you, growing up? What is it? Because I said so. Happy Easter. Yeah, good. What else? Someone, someone said something over here. What's that? Squeaky wheel gets the grease. I'll slap you silly. Um, we have counseling and prayer available. And, <laughs> what else? I'm doing this for your own good. Ooh. <laughs> what else? Over here, someone. I may not see you, but God sees you. Oh my gosh, that's the ultimate guilty one. I may not see you, but God sees you. <laughs> he knows what you're doing. Oh gosh. Teaching someone to embrace a loving God right there. So good. Ask your dad. Yeah, ask, I don't know. Ask your dad. This hurts me more than it hurts you. Gosh, we have a lot of discipline happening right now. What other things did you hear your mom say? Wait till your dad gets home. Wait, again, wait till dad gets home. A lot, of, a lot of moms passing the buck. I've had enough. Wait till dad gets here. What else? Be careful. I hope your I hope your kids grow up to be like you. Is what that says. That could, depending on the context, that could be really cool. Like you win the citizenship award at school, you, you could say that, it's wonderful. Or if you just like burn something, you know, I hope your kids grow up to be just like you. Anything else? Oh, there we go. I love you no matter what. Take that all, you all slap you silly folks right there. I love you no matter what. That's what I'm talking about. Now, my mom had an expression when I was growing up. And it was the, it was the way all of my childhood arguments ended every I mean, every single one of them. It ended in one word. It's really like this bizarre conjunction of three words into one word. It seems like it's something out of like a Shakespeare kind of like, you know, play. It's just this weird word all made into one thing. And it's a word that was, was employed. People don't even use it that much anymore. But it's this, this word right here. Right there. There it is. Nevertheless. <laughs> now, here's how I'll just tell you the way it was employed by my mom, who is in the audience. Where are you, mom? You're here. Yeah. Like, so she can, you can ask her later. She's over here. She's one of our greeters. And so you can ask her if this is actually true. But I'll give you her side of the argument as I were having this argument. Okay. It's brilliant. And my mom was a teacher for a number of years. Very tough to argue with her. Okay. So here's what she would say. You might be right. I may be a tyrant who demands that you go to bed at a reasonable hour. <laughs> you, you are probably right, Jeff. It is unfair that I won't let you go to skate plus roller rink on a Wednesday night with your other second grade friends. <laughs> you are, yes, I felt exactly the same way as that cry right there. You may be right that I am unfair to make you eat vegetables at dinner. You might be right about that. Nevertheless, <laughs> and that's how it went. There's no, how do you answer that? There's nothing else because the tactic is incredibly genius. 
because she's agreeing with everything I'm saying. Everything I believe about how crazy and awful that she might be and how tyrannical her rules are. She's like, you might be right about that. Oh, no, there you go. We're on the same page, I see. And then she would just hammer me with this. Nevertheless, eat your cauliflower and go to bed. I mean, that's what it, whatever it is, right? That's, that's how it ended. Now, the way to think about it is like this. There are a set of assumptions all of us live our lives with. A set of deeply held convictions or beliefs about reality, the, the world in which we live. That, that we base our life upon. These are all of how we understand our reality to be. And we're strongly convinced about them. And when we encounter something that challenges that reality, we basically are confronted with either one of two options. Like no matter what we believe about something, if the opposite of that belief is, is going to become our new reality, we have a crisis on the one hand, which is everything we know to be true or believe, it just it collapses on us and we fall apart. Or in the face of a new reality that challenges everything we believed or knew or assumed or are held to a deep conviction, we might, it's possible, have a transformation. So we have an assumption, and we have assumptions and convictions about reality, and at times we get confronted with an alternate reality in which we have to say, or the circumstances imply, nevertheless, you might have believed these things or understood these things, you might have a strong conviction about, nevertheless, there's a new way to think about it. You know, one of the, when you look at the, the, the early church, there's this, there's this conversation that they're having. There's this, the early church is really no different than us in the sense that they're looking at the reality of their world and it's starting to be challenged. People are observing the early church. They're hearing about this person, Jesus, and the, all of the sets of assumptions they believe to be true about the world and reality itself are being challenged. And here's what it looks like, Acts chapter 5, verse 12. The apostles, these are people who witnessed the resurrected Jesus. These are people who are given a particular kind of authority in the early church. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Now, I think this is interesting because what you're seeing here isn't just that people were watching the apostles with their signs and miracles... And they weren't like, well, that's pretty cool, and I, I'm, I'm skeptical. I, I, I want to check it out. There's not, it's just, they don't even dare. It's like the people who are connected to Jesus and all these miraculous things that are happening because of his power through them, they're like, well, I, kinda, I like that, but I won't dare be associated with those people. <laughs> like, not like I kind of would be okay with it. I wouldn't dare be around them. Now, for a lot of you in this room today, my guess is that you're kind of like that. Like, well, I... I feel like people are helped by Jesus, but I, I do not have any intention of ever being connected to these insane people. And we are crazy. People who are crazy, we believe crazy stuff. I mean, we have this day where we celebrate that a guy who once was dead isn't anymore. And that's, that's crazy. That contradicts everything people believe about their assumptions and their convictions about reality because we know dead people are dead. And all of these people, these Christians, believe that there is some kind of, he's not dead anymore. I remember when I was a kid, I, uh, I didn't really, I, when I was like in junior high, I started going to church. I was plugged into a youth ministry, and people started talking to me about it. And they were like, they were talking about Jesus is risen, you know, from the grave. And I was like, well, that's really great for Jesus. Good for him. I don't really get how that matters to me. I don't, get how that, I don't get how that makes any difference in my life. I'm glad that a guy who once was dead, wrote, that's awesome for him and for whoever missed him and stuff, but I don't get how that matters to me at all. 
I don't get why everybody's high-fiving each other about all this stuff. Like, I don't understand that. My 11-year-old son, um, he's really into the Guinness Book of World Records. And he, keeps che- he keeps checking it out from the library every time he can. And he brings it home, so he shows me all these bizarre, these ridiculous records that people have. There's like a record for a guy who he like intended to do this, I guess. He moonwalked for over a mile. <laughs> Somewhere in Eastern Europe, like Croatia or something, this guy moonwalked for over a mile. And it's like, wow. And the world was united for that moment. I mean, it's like, okay, so you moonwalked for a mile. There's a guy, I'm not kidding, I, I wish I would have had the picture for you guys. There's a, there's a record that this guy, he's super proud of it. He has the world record for the longest ear hair. And there's a picture of this guy. Some of you guys were here with us a couple weeks ago. I'm like totally paranoid about ear hair. This guy has literally got like the ponytails out to here like, check it out. Cool, right? And it's like, what? How does that guy, how does, does, does he have no friends? Does nobody love this person? You just say, that's gross. You don't want that record. But then, it's like, good for that guy. Well, who cares? And there's all these Christians, this, this beginning of the early church, these people are gathering and they're seeing God work through these apostles' power that God's given them. And they're like, that's really great, but I wouldn't dare associate with these people because I don't get why it matters to me. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure there's a lot of you in the room who feel the same way. Like, I don't, I don't really know what to do with this. I like that I'm here. I'm okay wearing the pastel sweater and eating ham today or whatever else, but I'm not, I'm not sure about all this. Because that's what's happening in the early church. People are observing the church, doing these things. Here's what's happening. Let's continue on. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, they're watching all of these people's lives being transformed by this inexplicable power of Jesus in some way or another, and they don't dare join them because it's so conflicting for them. It contradicts everything they know about reality and all of their assumptions about truth. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. There was something that was, there was something compelling about the people who belonged to Jesus. There was something about them by which they had to say, well, I don't know how to explain it, and it goes against everything I believe, and I don't understand how these people are somehow, I I don't want to be associated with these people, but I can't help myself. There's something overwhelming about these folks. And so, against their better judgment, against what they believe to be true, against everything else they know to be the absolute reality of the world, they start having to wrestle with this question. I think it's relevant for us. What do you do when you're confronted by a reality that directly contradicts contradicts what you believe to be true? What do you do when you're confronted by a reality that directly contradicts what you believe to be true? In other words, there's, the, there's the, these people watching the church and they're going, there's miracles happening, I don't believe in miracles. People's lives are changing, I don't, that they're all crazy and they keep talking about this risen Jesus, that's, all, that's completely insane, but I can't help myself because I want a new life and I've tried everything I can to have it and I don't know how to get it. So what am I going to do with it? The question is still relevant for us. So what do you do when something contradicts what you know to be true? Here's what happens. Acts 5, verse 17. Then the high priest and all his associates who are members of the party of the Sadducees. Let me tell you what's happening here, who the Sadducees are and the high priest. High priest is a member of this, this, this council called the Sanhedrin. He oversees all of the high holy days of the Jewish calendar. And the, the party that this group, the Sadducees, this group of people that are, that are in power there, that oversee the, um, the, the temple, 
are also kind of in league with the Romans. In other words, they're not quite in league with them, but they believe that there's a path to peace in the future. And it involves diplomacy and kind of working out compromises with the Roman Empire who has the power at that time. And there's one other thing. The Sadducees, this is, kind of, this is a little goofy, but you have to just bear with me why this is kind of significant. They, a good way to remember who they are. They are sad, you see. No, it's kind of like a Sesame Street kind of dumb thing. But these guys are sad, you see, because they don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. Other groups of people at the time of Jesus did who were Jewish, but these guys don't. So they're sad. Okay, I know, you get lame, right? Now, then the high priest and all his associates who are members of the party, the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy because the power now is shifting. They held the power. The temple and the people who oversaw the, oversaw the temple had all of this power and influence. And they still have a huge amount of influence at this time. But there's a power shift because all of these people who don't have, they, should have, they have no right, they should have nothing to do with people's lives being transformed and all this kind of stuff. All of those people are starting to gather a following and people are starting to talk about their lives changing and they're filled with jealousy. So they arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go, stand in the temple courts, he said, this is the angel speaking, and tell the people about this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and began to teach the people. Now, when you have the, the, the angel, obviously this is pretty cool, the angel breaks these guys out of jail and says, tell everybody about the new life. What's implied here is this, that the present life people are living is somewhat stale. That when, they, when the apostles go out and say, i got to tell you that a new life is possible, that that's what would be compelling to people because they go in their own life and in their own experience, they go, my life and my experience of life, it's just kind of worn out, it's kind of old, and it's kind of stale. And there is a new kind of life that is possible. So the angel says, go and tell people about it. Let them see it, let them know. And there's this kind of unstoppable thing happening here. You know, these guys are being locked up. God's power is at work. They're now being set free to do some stuff. And now there's this new life being talked about. Now, so they go out in the public, the public square again at the temple. And they're talking. They get rearrested. Here's what happens. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. So they're, obviously they're there again being questioned. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Now notice what they do not say. They do not say the name Jesus. They can't. It's just too controversial. It's too ugly. This is a person who's been put to death for being a blasphemer. I mean, this is a person who is filled with all kinds of evil. They can't even say his name. And they're going to be questioned about why they're doing it. They're going to be asked these questions about why would you do these things? You have all of this. Why? In the, you have this kind of loyalty now to this person of Jesus. You can't, and somehow or another, you guys keep talking about him and we have to stop you. They continue on. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. Now this is where it gets a little bit wild. Peter's about to explain the rationale for what he's doing. Now if someone asks you to explain to them about Jesus, you're a person who follows Jesus, let's just say you are, my guess is you would not start where these guys start. Check this out how they start their explanation. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead. The place he starts about Jesus is with the resurrection of the dead. Now, if someone asks you about Jesus, you would say, more than likely, you would start with, well, you know, this is a guy who lived in the first century. He was compassionate and kind. 
He welcomed people who were on the outside to the inside. He managed to somehow continuously upset the religious leaders by finding ways to make people, give people greater access to God. And he had, he, there, he's reputed to do these miracles, and people began to start believing things about him because he taught with authority, he did all these things. And then somewhere down the road, because you know it's so bizarre, you'd go, ah, and then he was killed and rose from the dead. But anyway, he was really compassionate and kind, and he was miracle. You just would not start there because it's so weird. And yet that's where they start. And then they continue, Peter continues. With the, check out how he sweetens the conversation, just a little subtlety way to sweeten this argument right here. Whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. <laughs> Let me tell you all about Jesus. He rose from the dead and you guys killed him. Right? I mean, this is where he starts. Continuing on. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance. Repentance is a word that means turn from one way to another way. And forgive their sins. I mean, this is where he starts. He starts with this whole conversation about the resurrection of Jesus and the accusation which of these, this high council where he's like, you guys put him to death. He doesn't have a long time to go into all of the explanation of who Jesus is, but he talks about how this person was killed on a cross. In the Hebrew Bible that we call the Old Testament, there's scripture that says if anybody's killed on a tree, that's a cursed person. There's no way that can be anything good. And yet there's this person, Jesus, who's killed on a cross. So why do these disciples start with the resurrection? If they could start anywhere to tell people about Jesus, why do they start with this resurrection thing? Why don't they start somewhere else? Because even in their own experience of following Jesus, the disciples who walked among him for those years, even they were like, we don't believe the resurrection. We don't get the resurrection. Check this out. This is their own words. Mark 8, Jesus then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. That's the council. And that he must be killed, and after three days, rise again. He spoke plainly about this. Like, I'm going to die, then I'm going to rise again. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. In other words, Peter's doing this. Hey, Jesus, uh, you, can't, you can't say stuff like you're going to rise from the dead. we got, like, little kids who are following us. Now, they're going to believe you. Just tell them it's a metaphor. Because this is like... You can't, you can't say, so G, Peter is telling Jesus, stop it, Jesus, don't say stuff like that. How bold do you have to be to tell Jesus to stop saying stuff? Jesus, shh, but it's not, these are, just keep that one to ourselves. I mean, that's what he's saying. Check this out. Mark 9, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man, this is a title Jesus uses for himself, had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. I, I don't know what that means. You know, we're rising from, who's rising from the dead? I don't, I don't, do we get a sweater? It's yellow or pink or, I don't know what we, do we, what do we, they don't have an idea. He's telling them I'm going to rise from the dead and they're like, sure we are. Sure you are. I don't know what that, what are you talking? Yes, you okay, Jesus. I don't know, too much water into wine. I mean, whatever it is, okay? John 20, verse 9. This is, this is literally the description of what happens when they're, look, the disciples are looking into an empty tomb, his own empty tomb. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Like, they're all there going, wow, the body's not there. It never dawns on anybody to go, remember when he was talking about rising from the dead? I think this is that moment. I think this is it. What do you guys say? Nobody says that. Nobody's like, hey, this must be what they call Easter. Get a bunny. Let's hide some eggs. Woo! (laughs) Nobody has that moment. In fact, they start going, oh, man, someone stole the body. Oh, gosh. And literally, that's what happens. 
Like, we don't know what happened. Someone stole the body. We're, oh my gosh, this is a total crisis. It never dawns on them to remember what Jesus said about rising from the dead because it's so crazy. They have a set of beliefs. They have a set of assumptions about reality. Where people, when they die, they stay dead. That's kind of a known thing. And so when Jesus says, I'm going to rise from the dead, they're like, yeah, yeah, sure. Other things you said are really cool too. I mean, they just don't believe him. They go to the empty tomb and they still don't believe it. Nevertheless, somewhere along the road there, somewhere along the line there, they start believing in a different kind of reality than the one that they had assumed to be true. Something began to show them something different than what they already knew to be true. And the only reason, the only way these guys could speak with this much conviction about this person who had risen from the dead, despite what everything they knew, is for this reason which they tell this council. Verse 32. Which should come up right now. There it is. We are witnesses of these things. Despite our better judgment, despite what we know to be true, we're witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. They said, we saw it. It took us a little while. We kind of tripped our, we kind of found our way, fumbled our way into it, but it took us a while, and we found our way into it. We believed something to be true that contradicted everything else. Now, why would they start with the resurrection? The Apostle Paul writes this to the, to the church in Corinth. He says it this way, 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile. In other words, the people who were gathered around the teaching and life of Jesus weren't just simply there because he was compassionate or a good teacher or because he modeled a better way to live. The critical thing for their faith was that he rose from the dead. And to put it even further, if you just were to believe that Jesus was a great teacher, a kind and compassionate person, but he didn't rise from the dead, then that's just not the same thing as being someone who follows Jesus. It's just futile. I mean, that's a pretty, pretty giant statement. And the council is completely insulted. They're ready to destroy the apostles. They're actually ready to kill him at this moment. And here's kind of this moment of reason, this kind of moment of logic that centers here. But here's what happens. Check this out. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. It's like, we've had enough. <laughs> you're calling us people who killed Jesus. You're too, I mean, you're talking about the resurrection of the dead. This is insane. We're going we're gonna to go ahead and we're just going to kill you right now. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel addressed the Sanhedrin. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Now this is a guy who's on the inside of the people who are accusing Jesus. This is a guy who's like looking at them going, wait, 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 let's just figure out, let's have, let's have cooler heads about this just for a second, let's pause. The Bible says that he's highly regarded among men. He says, wait a second. Some time ago, Thutis appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed and all his followers were dispersed and it all came to nothing. Now, what he's doing is he's quoting or he's citing history. And he's saying, there's a precedent for people that act like this. Between the time of about 50 B.C. and 50 A.D., so that 100-year span, there's like about a dozen guys who go, I think I'm the Messiah. Everybody follow me. Let's all grab swords and stab the Romans and say, God will be with us. Let's go. And they all do it. And then here's what happens. Romans go, we're kind of too big of an army for you. And so they just kill the leader publicly, and then all the followers are like, I guess that's not the thing anymore. I guess we're not doing that. That's, what, that's basically what he's saying. Then he cites another person. Some, after him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. So there's a pattern. We got a story here. These guys that are in front of us now, these people who follow Jesus, that keep these apostles, 
They're the same story. Their guy was killed. You're all there. We know what happened. So let's not get all up in arms, because here's what he said. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go, for if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. Now notice how he traps himself here. But if it's from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. Here's what he said. If we do nothing, then more than likely what will happen is all of these guys who follow Jesus, they're just going to disperse. They're going to start, they're going to realize, oh, he died and there was a big public humiliation and whatever. He wasn't the God. But if it doesn't die with this leader who's publicly killed, then maybe God is in this in a way. What he's saying is, you may be, you may be right, Jesus might be a blasphemer, a heretic, a criminal. He might be the worst person who have ever, ever walked the earth. Nevertheless, if his followers continue to, continue to grow and there continues to be life change, then maybe God's in it in some way we couldn't have otherwise expected. Maybe there's something to this. These guys are brought in, questioned. They're beaten. And when, they ask about, when they're asked about Jesus, they just start talking about the resurrection. And the question where we started this whole conversation is this one that everybody has to wrestle with at Easter. Why does Jesus' resurrection matter to me? Not just why does it matter on like the greater cosmic scale of like creation, but why does it matter to me? I mean, I get that, maybe, okay, so even if, despite everything I believe and know about reality, Jesus didn't just figuratively rise from that he actually rose from the dead, even if I, I mean, okay, I'll just suspend reality for a moment and believe that for a second. I still don't get how it matters to me. It's good for Jesus, but why does it matter the early church believed something about God's power, that the Holy Spirit, that he in some way would, has something to do with God, God, not only Jesus' resurrection, but a life we get to live. Here's what it says in Romans 8. It says this. Paul writes this. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you. Now, here's what this means. People who follow Jesus, this is what Christians believe, that the Holy Spirit, the power, the, the, the power the Holy Spirit gives inhabits God's people. That same Holy Spirit is the one who raised Jesus, who once was dead, to life. Meaning that not just do we go to heaven when we die, so that our, our faith can be lived out when we're dead. That doesn't really seem like that makes a whole lot of sense. Although that's part of the great joy of life. It's that right now, in our present lives, the power for renewal and a resurrection kind of life could be had right now. Now, so here's what it says. I'll read it again. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. You see, they believe something about reality. They believe that there was a a life or a, a fullness to life that could be had in the present, not just when they're dead, because somehow or another... Despite everything they deeply held true about reality, God was going to, if you take my meaning, Easter them. There's a biblical scholar named Walter Brueggemann who put the word Easter, he made it, he made it into a verb. I love what he says. He writes a, a really beautiful poem. I'll show you in a second. He says this. His prayer is entitled, Easter Us. Easter Us, God. Easter Us. Easter Us. And the people who walked with Jesus, who followed him, long after his resurrection, long after, I mean, long after his life and ministry, people who followed him, 
made this prayer their everyday prayer. I'm making this sort of a paraphrase of what their prayer is. What it says is, God, I'm up against some big stuff. I have huge pain and sorrow, and I, it, it seems like death has the final say, and I need you, God, to Easter us. Let me show you just an excerpt of this poem that Walter Brueggemann wrote. You defeater of death, whose power could not hold you. Come in your Easter. Come in your sweeping victory. Come in your glorious new life. Easter us. Solve wounds. Break injustice. Bring peace. Guarantee neighbor. Easter us in joy and in strength. Be our God. Be your true self. The Lord of life massively turn our life toward your life. Here are thankful, grateful, unashamed. Hallelujah. Hallelujah is a word that means the Lord be praised. Or praise be to God. Amen. Or truly, or verily, or yes. Easter us. That's what people believe. That's what people began to see about Jesus. What they began to understand could happen in their lives. Easter us. Easter us. Now, it may be true that you've never been in more pain in your entire life. You felt betrayal and loneliness in your own marriage. You may be right that you have never been more abused or neglected in your entire life. You may be right as you're searching for a new job that you're wondering if you're ever going to find that job. Some of you may, you may be right that you, are, you have the feeling of profound loneliness that you'll never find a person who you'd like to marry someday. Some of you who are students are feeling trapped in a world that you wish you could get out of. And you may be right about all of those things, but nevertheless, there is resurrection kind of power that restores things that are broken to wholeness. I talked to someone a Good Friday who said this is the nine-year anniversary of her son's death. There is real pain. There is real pain sorrow and yet in all of those circumstances no matter the degree of the pain that they're in death does not have the final say the resurrection says the worst of life circumstances aren't the final say that there can always be new life breaking in the resurrection is a historical event that happens one time but yet it's the ongoing work of god's resurrection power that works in us and through us all the time and so we look at our own life and we get to say never the less Death does not have the final say. Resurrection life has the final say. What I want you to do is this, just for a moment. Would you close your eyes? Just for a moment. I want you to consider something. Where in your life do you feel the power and the conviction of real pain and sorrow and loss? That might be so, that the power and the voice of that particular pain in your life is so strong that you believe it has the final say. That you are longing for a nevertheless kind of moment and you can't seem to find it. Where is it that you go? There just is no hope. Maybe today, God whispers to you, nevertheless. Nevertheless, there is power in a risen Jesus that's available to us, not to simply endure, but to overcome and to be made new. Now, look back up here just for a second. 
the story of God at work. And we don't have what the apostles had. They don't get to say, we, oh, we saw the risen Christ. He talked to us. He was walking around with us. We had breakfast with us. They, the, they don't get to say that. We're kind of like the second generation of people who are watching this early church. They say, we don't have Jesus. All we have is the evidence of the resurrection kind of life that I see in other people. That's all we get. Yes, God's power moves, but really in terms of witnessing the resurrection life, we have to see it in other people. Now let me ask you, how, how detailed does that story have to be to really capture it? How, how, how much elaboration do we need to tell that story? I think you could tell it in just about one sentence. I'll show you mine.
know for a lot of you. You think about the church, you think about Jesus, and you go, gosh, I would never dare associate myself with those people. I like what they got going on, but I just never dare. Get it. Totally get it. We talk about the resurrection, it seems so bizarre, and yet this is the story of what resurrection power looks like in people's lives. That life, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is available to us to transform us on an ongoing basis. We have been rescued and are constantly being rescued by his power in us. These are those stories. For some of you who are looking at it going, I'm not sure. Maybe today, despite everything you believe and know and understand and believe to be true, maybe the day you go, nevertheless, I don't know how to deny this. My life is stale and I want a new and fresh life. Some of you, maybe you just want to come back next week. You, wanna, you have questions, you're not sure about it, but you want to maybe, you're kind of curious about, well, I want to I, I investigate further. I have more questions. I, you know, like Kim already said earlier in the message that, or in the service that I don't have all the answers. But if you want to continue to ask questions, this is a safe place to ask those questions. We'll be talking about what a new life looks like in this reset series. But for those of you who are like in the moment, the nevertheless moment right now, which is like, I don't know how to deny this any further, no matter what this is, and you're going, I just, I want to say yes, how do I do it? I'm just going to give you an opportunity right now. So just, would you pray with me? Would everybody just close your eyes and just pray? And if this is you, for the very first time, you're like, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm going to say yes to Jesus. I don't have all the answers. Would you just repeat this prayer quietly in the quietness of your own heart? Father, I choose you. Jesus, I need you. I cannot do life on my own. I have tried everything I can to transform my own life. And I can't do it. Jesus, I believe that you came, you took on all the powers of sin and evil, and you put them to death on the cross, and that you were proven to be victorious over them by rising from the dead. And I believe, God, that you want to do the same thing in my life. I put to death all of my old stuff, all of the stale life, and I walk in a new life that you give to me that I cannot give to myself. So today, as best as I know how, despite what I know about reality, (laughs) I say yes to you. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. That is a story of love coming down. It's a story of God rescuing people, not because they're wonderfully talented or brilliant or because they wear the right sweater. Because he loves you. He wants you to walk with him. Now that is a reason to celebrate. That is a very good reason to celebrate. So we're going to sing one more song. That makes a deal. We need to sing this with conviction and belief and power. It is going to be a loud song. The great. If you took your earplugs out, put them back in. Okay? It's going to be loud and it will be fun. And the expectation is that we meet the resurrection with the kind of joy that it actually needs and it merits. All right, you with me? All right? So let's sing. Let's celebrate the new life in Christ. Let's do it.
sound great. You guys, you guys are okay too, but you guys sound awesome. Uh, Matt, so grateful that you guys joined us for Easter. Just a couple quick things I want to point out to you. One, again, it's next week. We're going to have baptisms. There's no better depiction of a new life in Christ than a baptism. And we'll, you know, if, you, if you're like thinking about it, you have questions about it, we'd love to answer those questions. If you have needs for prayer, I know that some of you maybe are wrestling with some of, this, some of these questions. Some of you may have maybe made a decision to trust Jesus for the first time in your life. And if there's someone who brought you and, you know, you're like, well, I don't want to go and talk to someone. You know, like we have people that would talk to you. And if someone brought you, they're not going to be like, oh, I'm going to be late for the ham. So hurry it up. They're going to be excited for you to come talk to people.